This evening we are moving into the next section of John chapter 10, the second half of this chapter. And these verses are all about the identity and person of Jesus, though of course we could say that about basically any text in the gospel according to John. It's explicit here though because the Jews who corner Jesus in the temple say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Clearly signaling that that's the issue at hand is who is Jesus? What is his identity? And in the midst of this interaction with these Jewish leaders, we get a greater understanding as well of ourselves, the church, the flock of God, and of the benefits that Christ brings to us in his ministry. There is in this section what are perhaps the greatest words of assurance in all of scripture. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 28. And then verse 29, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So if we have concerns about our salvation or our standing with God, or we're just in general facing a lot of fear and anxiety, this passage has something to say to us. These words can speak directly to our hearts. And I hope and pray that they do as we open them up together tonight. We'll approach this in three parts. First, we'll ask the questions about Jesus and his identity. Second, about what he brings to his flock. And then third, questions about how we know that we're a part of his flock, because he gives us some insight here in this text. So first, let's think about Jesus's identity as the true son. And notice the change in verse 22 and 23. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. The Feast of Dedication is what we know of as Hanukkah, and it is commemorating the reconsecration of Israel's desecrated temple in about 165 BC. You'll see two different dates, 165 or 164 in the scholarly literature on this. But the rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabeus. The temple had been uh, desecrated and defiled by uh, the Seleucid ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, and this led then to a successful revolt, a bloody revolt for several years by Judas and his brothers that then established the Hasmonean dynasty, a dynasty of priest kings who ruled over the people of Israel for over a hundred years. So this was a real high point. And this festival was looking back on the anniversary of when Judas and those in his army were able to celebrate sacrifices in the temple according to God's law again. Three years earlier in 168, Antiochus Epiphanes had authorized sacrilegious sacrifices, pagan rituals to be done in the heart of the temple as a flagrant act uh, to offend the Jewish people. And that's what provoked this revolt that then led to this liberation and deliverance. And all of this is in the background of Jesus's teaching, as we saw last week, about being the good shepherd. And it informs our understanding of his identity as the good shepherd. Last week, we focused more on the intimacy of this term. Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. He knows his sheep, and he seeks out his sheep who are not of this fold. But in this context, with this shift to the Feast of Dedication, we now understand shepherd not just in terms of that more intimate term, but now in terms of royalty, kingship, rule, and reign. Jesus is being portrayed here as the true king, one who restores the temple. He, of course, is the temple, but the true king, the Davidic king who comes in and brings true deliverance and liberation 
and rescue, like Judas Maccabeus did long ago. So in verse 24, they asked Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And that is the question. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Davidic king? Are you the promised one who was to come? And Jesus, if you'll notice, won't answer the question directly in this crowd in the temple. To say yes is to play into their politicized notion of what the Messiah should be. We saw in chapter 6, after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, that they wanted to make him king by force. To say no would be to be dishonest, because Jesus was the Messiah. And so Jesus answers in a more shrewd way in this highly contentious setting in the temple, and just says, I told you, and you do not believe. Now, we should note that Jesus has no questions about his identity. Remember in chapter 4, in private, with the Samaritan woman at the well, he tells her that he is the Messiah. Again, in chapter 9, in private, with the blind man that he'd healed, he tells him that he is the Son of Man. So there's no question in Jesus' own mind about his identity. His shrewd answer here is, is meant to kind of navigate that needle going through the tense situation that he's in. And then he, he, he says, um, so he says, I told you and you do not believe. Then he emphasizes in this section his union with and identification with the Father, the proximity between himself and the Father, as if to say, of course I am. Of course I am. So in verse 36, Jesus says, he refers to himself as him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world. Verse 36, he also implies that he said, I am the Son of God. Again, that is a messianic term, a term about the Davidic king who would come. We saw in our Old Testament reading in 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. If we were to look at Psalm 2, we see there another uh, expression of the king as the son. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So Jesus is associating himself with this Davidic king who would come. In verse 25, he says, the works that I've done are in the Father's name. And then in verse 38, he says, the works are to help them come to know, that is their initial conversion, and continue to know or to understand their ongoing discipleship of, in following Jesus, that, quote, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That's identification. And all of this is at its high point in what he says in verse 30, where Jesus simply says, I and the Father are one. That statement in verse 30 is so clear that the Jewish leaders want to stone him. And they say in verse 33, you being a man, make yourself God. The commentator McClement in 1901 said, made this astute observation. In reality, he, being God, had become man. They say, you, a mere man, make yourself God. But the reality was that he, being God, had made himself man. The Jewish leaders pushed back on Jesus because they were clear about the creator-creature distinction. That was something that Israel was very clear on. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And blasphemy was an accusation that they made against Jesus, that in some ways this distinction had been blurred and that God was no longer receiving the glory and honor that was rightfully and solely due to him. 
Jesus had muddied the waters. He had crossed a line. And so they accuse him of blasphemy. Jesus' defense is quite interesting, actually. He quotes Psalm 82, verse 6, which refers most likely to human judges or rulers as gods. Some rabbis in the day thought that the reference there was to Israel at Sinai receiving the word of God. But there's some association with those who've received God's word and stand, in a sense, in God's place, which both Israel and kings and rulers did, could be referred to as gods. That's what Psalm 82, verse 6 says. And Jesus is saying, look, if Scripture calls those gods who stand in the place of God as judges or rulers or as his people, then surely the one who is consecrated and sent from God can say, I am the Son of God. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And in the midst of that argument, Jesus also makes an interesting affirmation or affirms scripture in a deep way. Even a relatively obscure passage of scripture, because most of us aren't that familiar with Psalm 82. This is not Isaiah 53 or Genesis 12 or Genesis 1. But Jesus still says in verse 35, scripture cannot be broken. And it's Jesus' great love and reverence for scripture and in his case, he meant the words of the Old Testament that led the church to preserve the Old Testament as a part of our scriptures following his death and resurrection. For in it, we see Christ as Christ makes so clear on the Emmaus road with the disciples and he shows them all that was written about him. And as he explains earlier in this gospel in chapter five to the Jewish leaders, you search the scriptures, he says, because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. So these affirmations remind us of the centrality and the importance of Scripture in Jesus' own mind and also in the church that follows and worships him. We are a Scripture-saturated community. But their, their charge of blasphemy is honestly understandable. Think about it. They see Jesus as a man from Nazareth. They know his siblings. They know his friends. They know his occupation. And they know, of course, his parents. And one wonders... How can they know anything different? And Jesus gives an answer to that question. He says, look at what I've done. Look at my works. So verse 25, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. Many of us have had the experience of working with a contractor and we may know about the company's reputation. We certainly see their trucks with the, the, the name of the company plastered on the side. But what we really want to see is we're getting to choose a contractor as examples of their work. Show me the fences that you've put up. Show me the bathrooms and kitchens that you've renovated. Show me pictures of the, of the yards that you've landscaped. Show me your work. And Jesus is saying that here to these Jewish leaders. He's pointing to his work and saying, my works bear witness that I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. So he says at the end of our section in verses 37 and 38, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. In other words, I could not be doing the things that I'm doing were it not for the Father being in me and working through me and myself being in the Father. It's not unlike his response actually to the messengers that John the Baptist sends in the Synoptic Gospels. 
to ask him if he was the one to come. John the Baptist was in prison, so he sends these messengers. And remember Jesus' response. Go and tell John what you see and hear. And then he points to his works. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the good news preached to them. Look at what I do, Jesus says. And we might just remember, what has Jesus done up to this point in the gospel? He's healed the blind man. He's fed the 5,000 in chapter 6. He healed the invalid in chapter 5. He healed the official son in chapter 4. And way back in chapter 2, he turns the water into wine. And if that's not enough, as we'll see next week in chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead, demonstrating his power over death itself. And then as Jesus is pointing again and again in this text to his works, I think we're right also to hear an echo and a pointing forward to his greatest work, which is his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later. These works resonate with those of us who follow Jesus. We see in them an authentication of his identity as God's chosen son, as the Messiah. They show that he has come from above, that he is no ordinary mortal. And they are in line, his works, with the heart and the will of the Father, the new creation life that's poured out through him in healing, in community and fellowship, in words of mercy and grace to those on the margins. These demonstrate his identity as God's true son. They point to him as the word made flesh. So here's the point to take from this first section. If you want to know the Father, then look at Jesus. If you're looking at Jesus, then you know the Father. That, of course, is the point of the entire gospel, according to John. To know God, we must know Jesus, and to know Jesus is to know God. He is at the Father's side. He who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. He is God's autobiography, telling the world what God is like. So Jesus is God's true son, the Davidic Messiah, the, the, the Christ who urges the hearers to look at what he does to authenticate this claim. This is who God is, Jesus says. Second, we see what he brings in terms of his benefits to his sheep. And these benefits are listed in verses 28 and 29. And here again, we come to the most assuring words in all of Scripture. There are two benefits listed in verse 28. First, I give them eternal life. This is the life that is overflowing and abundant that never ends. But I want to focus on the second dimension here. They will never perish, he says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's an astonishing statement. They will never perish. That, of course, goes with eternal life. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Yes, there are warning passages in Scripture, in the New Testament, plenty. And we've seen some even in the Gospel according to John. But these words here, these are the encouragement and assurance passages in the New Testament that we should pause at and glory in and celebrate as we come upon them. Essentially what Jesus is saying is what matters in your life is my grip upon you. 
my hold upon you as the good shepherd holding and grasping and, and clinging to his sheep. In the words of Calvin, we are surrounded indeed by powerful adversaries. And so great is our weakness that we are every moment in imminent danger of death. But as he who keeps what we have committed to him is greater or more powerful than all, we have no reason to tremble as if our life were in danger. He continues, it is of great importance for us to turn our eye to this, that fear of temptations may not dismay us. For Christ even intended to point out the way in which sheep are made to live at ease in the midst of wolves. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Makes me think of the psalmist in Psalm 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Because he knows that the Lord is the shield about him. His glory and the lifter of his head. Or think about the Apostle Paul, who says in Philippians 1, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 3 says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. We will never perish. And no one will snatch us out of his hand. He is one with the Father. And he says that we will have eternal life and not be snatched away. So the implication is do not be afraid. His grip upon us is our security and our comfort. And as if that is not enough, he comes and says in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of, my fa out of the Father's hand. So there's Jesus's grip and then the father's grip comes on top and this double grip is holding us in life, holding us in the kingdom, in his flock. And their grips together form a strong and irrevocable hold upon the sheep. No one will, verse 28, no one is able, verse 29, to snatch us out of that grip. In his commentary on this text, Leon Morris writes, It is one of the most precious things about the Christian faith that our continuance in eternal life depends not on our feeble hold on Christ, but on his firm grip on us. We should notice that the teaching of this verse is not that believers will be saved from all earthly disaster, but that they will be saved no matter what earthly disaster may befall them. I know our congregation is familiar with the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563. It's plastered on the inside of all of our hymnals. And it says this, What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. It's a great commentary on no one will snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. 
assured of eternal life, held firmly in the grip of the Son and the Father, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid when the storms are raging, as the pandemic wears on, when you can feel the heat from the fire, when the armies are stacked against you. Don't be afraid when you feel it will be too much to bear, when you think you're having to pretend too much just to get along in life, when you're falling into sin, when you're numb, when you don't sense the presence of God. Do not be afraid, but relish in this truth that no one can snatch you out of his hand, that you are a sheep in the flock of Christ, under his rule, and protected and guarded by him. These are deep words of assurance, and they're the words not of just wishful thinking or of a salesman, but they're the words of the living Lord of the universe. They're dependable words, words on which we can base our experience and our emotions and our thinking. Third, then, is the question of, so how do we know that we are under his care? How do we know that we belong to his flock? And Jesus gives us an insight here into what true sheep actually look like. And the key marker is believing. Jesus tells the Jewish leaders who were interacting with him, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And the implication there is that those among his sheep do believe. And the whole invitation of this gospel is to believe into Jesus. And the way this passage ends, Jesus goes back across the Jordan to where John the Baptist had been baptizing, and many come to him, and they're amazed at the fact that all that John the Baptist has said about him is true. They reflect on the signs that he's performed, and it says in verse 42, many believed into him there. So Jesus gives us three marks of his sheep in verse 27. And these are the marks of those who make up the true church, which I'm not defining in any particular or narrow way, but across history and across the globe. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. These simple things, let's consider them briefly. They hear my voice. True sheep listen to Jesus. They listen to his teaching. They listen to him through the words of scripture. They listen to him in the quietness of prayer. Their ears are tuned to the Jesus-focused and Jesus-saturated voice of both the scriptures and the scripture-formed, scripture-digesting, reading, proclaiming church. I wonder, as you think about your life, do you listen to the voice of Jesus? Do you hear his voice? That's defining mark number one. The second defining feature is Jesus says, I know them. It's a present tense verb. And we might hear it better if we think of it as I'm getting to know or I'm knowing them. Which is to say that we experience the knowing, Jesus's knowing of us in our lives. We have his word, his touch, his healing, his forgiveness his care, his life. It's a personal relation that's going on. In fact, if we think about these two things, Jesus is very down to earth, basically saying, you hear my voice and I get to know you. We're in this conversation. You're, you're listening to me and I'm getting to know you. It sounds like a healthy relationship. 
And we get to experience his seeing us and knowing us and communing with us, his assurance of us. A couple of years ago, I was catching up with a friend of mine with whom I studied over in England. We hadn't seen each other in many, many years, and we were having coffee. And he told me this story of driving the week earlier with his oldest daughter, who was about six or seven at the time. And they were driving in the car, and she just volunteered, Daddy, sometimes God talks to me. And, he had, and then he asked her, and this is a great response as a dad. He was just very open-ended. He said, oh, really, honey, what does he say? And her reply was this. He just says my name. Isn't that beautiful? Coming out of the lips of a child. He just says my name. He knows me. He speaks to me. She was hearing his voice and experiencing his growing knowledge of her. That's the second defining feature. And the third is this. They follow him. They hear his voice. He gets to know them. And they follow him. We walk in his ways. We are not merely hearers of the word. But doers. As James says. And we embody the obedience of faith. With which Paul opens and closes the book of Romans. This is what it means to believe into him. This is the nature of what it means to be a part of the true church, to be a, a, a sheep in the flock of Jesus. It's to hear him, to be known by him, and to follow him. May we not make it more difficult than that. These are the marks. And those who hear him and are known by him and follow him, they are the ones about whom Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Their security is certain and sure. They can have genuine assurance, whatever trials and hardships they may be walking through. I don't know what you're afraid of, but I'm pretty confident that you're afraid of something. And I know that we're all experiencing a good bit of fear and anxiety about just the uncertainties of a world that's facing all that it's facing that we can't control. We want to know the outcome, and we can't right now. I do know that all of us are facing situations and circumstances in one way or another that generate fear in us. Either because we don't have control or because we just don't know what's going to take place. And I want you to bring that to mind right now. What is it that you're afraid of? And then I want you to re reflect on the reality of Jesus' words of assurance to his sheep. No one will be able to take, snatch them out of my hand. And think about that in relation to whatever it is that you just brought to mind. Recognize that whatever comes in that circumstance, whatever the outcome of that circumstance is, that in no way is it possible for whatever that is, to lead you to being snatched out of the protective care and love of your good shepherd, Jesus. That gives us tremendous assurance and an ability to walk away or out of fear and anxiety and into peace and true joy because we know that he holds us. We know that he grips us. 
and we know that this is what matters most about our lives. Come what may, even if we lose our physical lives, we still can't be separated from him. We can never be ripped out of his hand. Let's pray.